Welcome to the Beacon broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com, beaconbaptist.com. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We should be very, very quiet as we enter into the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and overhear him praying to his Heavenly Father in John chapter 17. And the more we hear, the more we are able to learn about the counsels of God as they relate to the work of redemption. This high priestly prayer spoken by Jesus in the presence of his apostles on the very night of his betrayal and arrest contains a wonderful and indescribable unity. All of the elements of the prayer are closely interrelated. We can analyze it. We can outline it. We can categorize elements of it and divide it. And indeed, we must do all of these things if we're going to break it down into small enough segments segments to study and to meditate upon And yet, through it all, there is a unity that defies division, an integration that baffles segmentation. And so now we will continue with the second section of the prayer. You recall that section 1, verses 1 through 5, is Jesus praying for his own requests And then the second section, verses 6 through 19, is Jesus praying for his disciples. And the remainder of the prayer, verses 20 through 26, constitutes Christ's prayer for all who in the future will believe on him. Those who were not even born when he prayed this prayer to his heavenly Father before his crucifixion. And in all of this, we find some elements of God's work of redemption revealed in this conversation between God the Father and God the Son. So thank you for joining me on this Saturday or Sunday, depending upon what station you are listening to, March 2 or 3. Thank you for remembering that we need financial help in order to continue to teach God's Word on this station that you are listening to at this very time. Well, the purpose for Christ's coming is disclosed in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, And they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. 
So what do we find here? Well, we find, first of all, the purpose of Christ's coming, and we've already covered that pretty thoroughly in verse 6. But it is to redeem a people so that they will know God. The world created by the power of God is in sinful rebellion against its creator. The world created by the power of God, and I'm talking now about human beings who live in this world, rejected the God who made it, made them, rejected the one who gave them life and sustains that life and provides all things necessary for their life here in this world. They rejected the knowledge of God that was given to them. Read carefully Romans chapter 1. And so, indeed, the world in darkness knew not God, but Christ came to redeem a people who will know him, who will enjoy him, who will glorify God forever. For the chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. And so Christ came to redeem a people who know their God. Christ came to redeem a people who value God's word. The last part of verse 6 says, And they have kept your word. The world fell into destruction by failing to value God's word. Clear back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam what to do in regard to the tree of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil, and Adam did not value God's word. And Eve first listened to the deceiver who caused doubts in her mind to be raised about the veracity of the word of God. God didn't really mean what he said. God just wants to keep you from advancing. God wants to keep you down. Has, does it occur to you that the same kind of deception is being perpetrated today upon many people? You're just being kept in an oppressed condition by people who are taking advantage of you. And, of course, there is a measure of that that goes on in this world, but some people are deceived into thinking that there's nothing they can do about it except maybe join in a communist revolution or something of that nature. But, yes, all people, in one sense or another, are oppressed. I say all people because we live in a sinful world and we live among people who are sinfully taking advantage of others when they are able to do so. But <laughs> that's not an inescapable condition. It's not even an inescapable condition as far as the things of this world are concerned, for many people have, have very successfully risen in spite of opposition and some measure of oppression. Again, I say, all of us have experienced some of that. It's so easy to believe the lie that you are advantaged and I am disadvantaged. You have all the advantages, nothing to disadvantage you. I have all the disadvantages, nothing but disadvantage for me. And the fact of the matter is, every human being in this fallen world has some disadvantages, some things that, some obstacles that make it difficult for them. And every human being in this world has some opportunities, some ways to escape their disadvantaged conditions, which surely do exist, and, and more for some people than others. There's no question about it. But <laughs> that, that's really, in a sense, what was going on clear back in the Garden of Eden. 
God knows that in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like gods. You'll know what God, what now only God alone knows, and he doesn't want you to know that. He's trying to keep you down. He's trying to oppress you. He's trying to take advantage of you. He doesn't want you to rise to a higher position that's available to you if you will do what I say, if you will listen to my words instead of listening to his word. And so the world fell into destruction by failing to value God's word, and the world continues on the path of destruction by continuing to ignore God's word. But what are we talking about, the purpose of Christ's coming? It is to redeem a people who know their God and value God's word. Christ redeems a people who treasure every word of God, who know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Yes, Heavenly Father, pray Jesus, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And what else can we say about the purpose of Christ's coming? In addition to his coming to redeem a people who know their God and to redeem a people who value God's word, we can also say he came to redeem a people who honor the Son. Not only to know the Father, and I take that to be the primary meaning of the word God, as I used it earlier, to redeem a people who know their God. Jesus said that they may come to know you, Heavenly Father, but a people who also honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. The Son, who is the revelation of God. To honor the Son, who himself is here to honor God. And this is the way that men will come to know God. How? By coming through the Word of God, by believing the Word of truth, coming to know God in a living way, a sanctifying way. And so we read in verse 7, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them, verse 8, the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. What a prayer. What a amazing revelation. What a wonderful truth. What wonderful truths, plural, are revealed to us in this high priestly prayer of God, of Jesus, which reveals to us, first of all, the purpose of Christ's coming, and secondly, the objects of Christ's purpose. Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Who are the objects of Christ's purpose? Who are the objects of Christ's prayer? For those two statements are actually one and the same. The object of Christ's purpose, his saving purposes, are the same ones for whom he prays. And who does he tell us that is? Verse 9, I pray for them 
the ones that he's been talking about in the previous verses, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. See how it all ties together? You see the the integration of, of the various statements of the prayer, the various parts of the prayer? <laughs> it takes us right back to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That's what he said in verse 6. They were yours, and you gave them to me. I pray for them, the ones you gave me, for they are yours. So, the object of Christ's purpose are those given to the Son by the Father, not the world in the sense of every individual in all the world, not the world in sinful rebellion against God, not the world, meaning those in the world who will not yield to their sovereign maker, who will not yield to his sent Redeemer, who will not acknowledge the truth of God's word, he's not praying for them. That in itself is an astonishing statement that seems to contradict what people believe about the Bible. But I'm afraid that many times the things that we believe about the Bible are not really what the Bible says. It's what people say about the Bible. It's what people think about the Bible mistakenly. It's what we have heard about the Bible. But this certainly doesn't teach an indiscriminate, unconditional love of God for every individual without exception. There are huge distinctions that are made here. And Christ says very clearly, I am not praying for the world. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean you're not praying for the world? Are you not concerned about the world? Well, of course he is. But not in, he has a, a, a concern, yes, even we could say a love for the world, meaning as, as that word is used here, meaning the unconverted in the world, the unbelieving in the world, the, the ones who will never come to him in this world. The Bible teaches us that there is a, a sense in which God loves all people. But what we are misled about so many times is to, to be told or, or, or trained to think that God loves everyone in this world in the same way. God's love for everybody is an eternal, unconditional love. And we're taught, taught that that's the case, that that's what it means, that God is love. The, the bumper sticker that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I don't think that can be borne out by what I'm seeing here in Scripture. Christ said, I don't pray for the world. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
Now, the question arises, if, if this statement is true, how could we say it's not true? How could we deny it? This is Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying to the Father. How could we deny this? But then that raises the question, well, that being true, that Christ does not pray for the world, you say, well, that must mean not in this prayer, maybe in other prayers. Well, I don't know that you could, could uh, document or identify another prayer of Christ in the Bible where he does pray for the world. I'm not, I'm not aware of one. What we have learned is that most of the prayers of Christ are not recorded. We don't know what he said. We don't know what he prayed for. And so we, we tend to assume certain things. <clears throat> we assume, well, he must have prayed for the world in other prayers, maybe just not in this one. Well, the only one that's recorded extensively to give us some factual insight into how Christ prayed and what he prays, prayed for tells us very clearly that he did not pray for the world. Because to pray for the world would be contrary to the petitions of this prayer. And I'll just have to give you some. They're coming up. We, we haven't gotten to them yet. But in this prayer, he's going to pray for the preservation of his people. Well, he can't pray for the world to be preserved when they don't believe on him and cannot be preserved. The opposite is, is coming to those who refuse to believe. They will not be preserved. They will not be kept safe. They are going to be cast into outer darkness. He prays for the unity of the people for whom he prays. Well, how could he pray for unity between those who love him, who believe in him, who follow him, who worship him, who adore him, and those who hate him, who rebel against him, who will not yield to him? How could he pray for unity among those two completely divergent groups? Obviously, he cannot. What else does he pray for? In verse 13, he prays for the joy of these people, his, his people, those that were given to him by the Father and for whom he now prays. He can certainly pray for them to be filled with joy, but how can he pray for those who are in defiant rebellion against their Creator to experience joy? He, he certainly could not do that with a clear conscience. He prays in verse 17 for the sanctification of the objects of his prayer. Well, how can he pray for the sanctification of people who will not believe in him, who do not trust him, who refuse to come to him? How can he pray for their sanctification? But to pray for the sanctification of his people is a very appropriate prayer. And on and on, and on it goes. He prays for his people to be a testimony to the world. Well, that's not appropriate to pray for the world. They can't bear testimony of Christ. He prays for those who are the objects of his prayer, to come into their heavenly destiny and behold Christ's glory. Well, that's not appropriate for the world, uh, for those in the world that, we are, that refuse to believe in him. He prays for the objects of his prayer that they 
come into experience the divine love of God in verse 26. But again, that requires saving faith. That requires a repenting faith. That requires a believing faith. That requires a a a love for, a treasuring of the word of truth. And none of that is true of those who are in the world outside of those that were given to Christ by the Father. So how could he pray for the world, considering the requests that he makes in this prayer? The only possible place that comes to my mind where we hear Christ praying for those who are not currently believers when he prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that certainly would seem to follow his instructions to his disciples to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. It's perfectly appropriate for us to pray for the world, to pray for unconverted people, to even to pray for our enemies. We are to love our enemies. But back to this prayer of Christ on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, raises some questions. Is he praying for the Father to forgive them apart from repentance and faith? For, forgive them regardless. Here are some sins I'm, I'm, I'm calling upon you to forgive even if they never repent of them and they never believe. Is that what he's praying? I mean, it, some people would think so. It almost sounds like that on the surface. Or is he praying for people who will come to repentance and faith in him as a result of his prayer for them, these who are unbelievers now? We don't know what happened to all of those who were involved in his crucifixion. But there are indications that at least some of them came to faith in him, even, well, we've got the thief on the cross who started out railing against him just like the other one. The two were together in their antipathy, their hostility, their mocking of Jesus. Both of them had sin-darkened hearts of rebellion and unbelief, but something happened. One of them came to the place where everything changed. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He, he, he rebuked the other one. Don't, don't say these things. Why, we are, we are being crucified justly. We are, we are experiencing the just reward of our, of our crimes. They were no doubt murderers. We talk about the two thieves on the cross, but there's nothing in the Bible that indicates they were thieves. The Bible indicates that they were very serious offenders against Roman law. They, no doubt, had, had been involved in, in some act of insurrection in which people were killed. Now they're being executed for crimes of capital punishment. Now, as you know, it's more common for people who are being um, sentenced and carrying out a sentence be, uh, because of their crimes to maintain their innocence. If you've ever 
been involved in in uh, taking the gospel into jails and into prisons, <laughs> you'll find out that sometimes it's difficult to find a guilty person in prison. Now, I'm, I'm saying sometimes because actually over the years I have seen wonderful works of conversion, how God has converted men in prison, and, and most of my experience has been with men, not with women in prison, but God has wonderfully converted men in prison and, and brought them to repentance and faith and to become followers of Christ and have a hunger for the Word of God and want to study the Bible. And that's a wonderful thing. But in the general population in the prison, what you usually learn from the lips of the prisoners who are there is, I didn't do anything wrong or what I did was very minimal. They they caught me, but they didn't catch the real criminals. The in other words, in, in a sense, they seem to be saying all of the real criminals are on the outside, and, and those of us who are on the inside, at least, at least me, at least in my case, I'm really quite innocent. What I did was, was very minor, did not deserve the sentence that I've received. In other words, to justify their crimes and to deny their guilt. That's the usual response, isn't it? But here was a criminal on the cross who started out with that attitude, and then something changed. And now he's acknowledging his guilt. We are on this cross justly, but this man is an innocent man. He, he recognized the difference and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. So there's one person at the cross who came to faith in Christ. He's not necessarily one of those who was involved in the crucifixion of Christ, but we see that example of one at the crucifixion who was saved. But we also see the example of the centurion. When all was over and done and Jesus had died, gave up the ghost, the centurion who oversaw that execution said, surely this was indeed the Son of God. Now, what would bring a Roman centurion, presumably a pagan, an idol worshiper, and one who had overseen many crucifixions over the years, no doubt, what would bring him to recognize such a vast difference in Jesus compared to all of the others that he has overseen crucifixions and heard their words and their agony and their, their hatred and their cursing and all that goes on in that case. What, what caused him to recognize this, this difference so great, such a great difference, that he concluded that this man was, in fact, who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the King of the Jews, now, I'm sure the miracles that took place had something to do with it. That darkness that covered the cross that was so thick that they couldn't even see the people hanging there. A mercy of God so that human eyes could not gaze upon the greatest agony of our Savior upon the cross. But this centurion had never seen anything like that before. And I don't know what all God used to bring him to acknowledge the truth about Jesus, it almost sounds like he became a believer. Is that an answer to Christ's prayer? 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive this centurion who is the officer in charge of the execution because he does not know what he is doing. And shortly thereafter, he testifies of his faith in Christ. That is to say, surely this is indeed the Son of God. And how many others there came to know Christ? We really don't know, but we certainly cannot deny the possibility that everyone for whom Christ prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, came to repentance and faith in Christ in answer to Christ's prayer. Well, we'll take it up, Lord willing, next week. Join me then. Until then, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.